0: You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, a podcast focused on getting you up to speed on issues in cybersecurity with engaging experts and stimulating conversations. To learn more, visit us at intel.com slash cybersecurityinside. What are the components within that supply chain? And can we verify that those are actually the right components?
1: You can get the benefits of AI without having to share too much of your own personal data. Holy cow. There's so many places this could go wrong now, right? And, and how do I secure all of this? Welcome to the Cybersecurity Inside Podcast. I'm Tom Garrison. Our guest today is Todd Weber. After an early start at NASA, helping with communications for the International Space Station, he shifted to computer networking and spent over 20 years in IT engineering cybersecurity, and operations. My co-host Camille Moorhart and I talked to Todd when he was just wrapping up his work as Chief Technology Officer at Optiv and moving into the post of CTO and operating partner at 1011 Ventures, a venture capital firm exclusively dedicated to helping cybersecurity companies thrive. We started our conversation with Todd by asking him to talk briefly about the shift in security he's seen from his early days in networking to the cybersecurity needs of today.
2: We all from an older generation started off with having to have a real fundamental understanding how the plumbing worked underneath. And then, you know, as we've gone over time to look at now how we're at kind of the software world and the application world, and then how security has developed over time. It just wasn't a function of what any sort of design consideration was when we first started. And and now just looking at some of the fundamental components of what we put in back then, Designed by geniuses, however, geniuses of 40 years ago, putting in things that still work, but they fundamentally just don't have the security built into them at a fundamental level that we all are having to still live with uh, at this point. And then, you know, now to today's problems of how applications work and, and privacy and the rest, and how that evolved, has all evolved into our industry of cyber today. The world is so different now, even than
1: just a few decades ago, where the technology that was built at the time was so groundbreaking, and that it enabled people to communicate and connect in ways they'd never done before. And that was good enough. Just the fact that it worked was incredible. And now, of course, that level is taken for granted. And now you have to think about all of these other potential vulnerabilities that may or may not exist and design something vastly, vastly more complicated than even those initial, uh, you know, the, the initial technology just to keep it safe.
2: And it's not easy to do. Uh, you think of like the fundamental aspects of DNS and BGP and, uh, and SNMP, all of these are fundamental things of how like our networks work and underlying things that we all depend on and they weren't designed for security that's the part we struggle with. So you think of SolarWinds particularly, I mean, you know, that was somebody taking advantage of a loophole of everybody always knows their network management system is whitelisted and it does SNMP polls and it has admin privileges to pretty much everything in the network. Somebody took advantage of that. And, you know, those are the things we have to always be thinking differently about. Uh, and I don't want to, you know, underemphasize the fundamentals of security, meaning talk to clients so much and you know a lot of clients ask me like how do i get furthest down the field with doing the fewest number of things and i I really always point to the same things it's always about like you know how well do you do the fundamental aspects how well do you do things like patch management how well do you do the things like asset management and attack surface management just very simplistic things that um it's like something like 90 some percent of all malware in the world is written in known vulnerabilities in five applications I'm going to make this sound very easy, and it's not. Is, you know, if you could just do your asset inventory and patch those assets as those uh, vulnerabilities come up, then you wouldn't be vulnerable to 90 some percent of all malware in the world. Those kinds of things are the ones that get you furthest down the field. And then you start working towards inches. And that's how we fundamentally build strategies.
0: Does it vary? the advice depending on what kind of company or organization you're dealing with or the kinds of products that it's producing?
2: It's not the same, uh, but people do tend to simplify around the wrong things. You see people try to simplify around large companies versus small companies and that the problems are different. The advice that I give is mostly structured. Uh, you brought up one of the points is what industry are you in? If I'm a weapons manufacturer you know, for the US federal government, Well, then you're going to have a very different security posture and a very different profile and you're going to have a forced level of maturity upon you and you're going to have much different uh, levels of advice than i would give to somebody who is in retail but uh, you know what you do see is you tailor your advice based on what maturity curve that they're on and you can have very small companies that are very mature in their technology stacks and their security processes and their security talent so you, I view pointed in two different ways. One is where are they on the maturity curve? And that, you know, that maturity curve is also, remember, a reflection of what the business is, how tolerant are they for risk? You know, frequently us in, in security and technology, we kind of tend to think that we rule the roost as far as like, you know, choosing technologies and, you know, defining what use cases are and doing that. We really need to fundamentally look at like, what kind of business are we? What level of risk do we take on? What sort of regulatory and compliance components that are put onto us from our business perspective? And that should reflect what technology we buy and what use cases we do, as opposed to the other way around?
0: You're defining it almost as a single curve. So where is anybody on that curve? And if you're weapons or Department of Defense or maybe automotive or something, you're really high on the curve. And if you're something that's not likely to be attacked, and and it's not a functional safety concern, then maybe you're lower on the curve, or maybe you're a smaller business. Are there different curves, though? I mean, does the entire structure of how you're going to protect yourself ultimately look different depending on industry or depending on some sort of category?
2: There are multiple curves, and and you did hit on it right there is is kind of that risk function of, you know, what sort of risk level tolerance can we take if it's like the phones are going to go down? But different people define uh, things in different ways. I'll give you a story. I-, I was working for one of the casinos in Las Vegas, one of the large ones. And it's really the entire network that they have and everything is built around their voice network. And every bit of fault tolerance and every bit of like, security is built into making sure that those phones stay up and that calls don't drop. Those curves do differ, but it also is dependent upon our point of view. So I'll give you another great example that uh, people are struggling with nowadays is Cyan. Uh, So how do you do controls and things down to your client level? I know what tolerance I can give to like my corporate users. I know what they can deal with. I know what will make them bend. I kind of, you know, have a good understanding of what makes them break. But when you think of Siam, you got to think in an entirely different mindset of what can my grandmother pull off in a hotel room with her cell phone? I'll be honest, I get very uncomfortable trying to figure that out because it's not about my level of technology or even people that I know. These are going to be like clients and you know you have to fit into their demographics and everything that they're based on is to what level of uh, user experience they're having. And if it's too difficult, they'll move to a different platform. And that becomes very difficult for us to deal with in security because. Let's face it. Security isn't all about user experience. <laughs> it's about kind of controls. So you, you're doing your best, but that that also puts into that curve. It's almost a three-dimensional curve. You know, you mentioned a, a bit ago that
1: most of the attacks that have happened are well-known vulnerabilities on on a relatively few number of applications. And I guess, from my standpoint, I'm curious. Why do you think that as an industry, we've had such a hard time addressing those, and I say that in, in with the following context, right? We know that it's work. We know that it requires people to go off and, and do patching and so forth like that. But even if you just focused on the big ones and get the, the patches out in a timely fashion, from your experience,
2: why? aren't people doing more of it? I I think it really has to do with motivations of people. It's certainly not laziness, but people, how are people measured? What do people get yelled at for? What, I mean, think of it down to that visceral level. What am I gonna get yelled at for more? Am I gonna get yelled at that I went from patch level two to patch level three, or am I gonna get yelled at if for whatever reason I took down the production SAP server and that caused some 20 other people to have a real problem? And what it does is it, it makes people take a foundationally, very cautious approach to things. And we've created a world as people create this very methodical change control world that, uh, you know, we actually put out something on automated patch management, kind of defining how we've created this. And, you know, <laughs> it's a huge complex graphic that we show of how most companies uh, have acted. And we actually used our client advisory board to, to give us what their processes were and to everyone in there. It was incredibly complicated, it was incredibly laborious, and it was incredibly manual in all cases. And and do you
1: think it needed to be?
2: No, and that's where we kind of tried to get people to think differently and to be motivated differently. And we understand that you probably can't automate everything, but in the end, don't try. Try to automate the things that you can and then put the process in where you have to still. If you think of even like things like SOAR, The number of use cases that you can come down to where a human has to make no decision whatsoever is actually right now, not very many. But what can you do with automation? If you think about how many tools we have out there now, think about just enriching all of the data of like, you know, you get an email alert or you get an endpoint alert. Typically your security operations person has to go look at like six different tools to go figure out, is this a false positive or is this something that needs to move up to to level two? Okay, well then use your sort just to automate all that. Collecting all that data, being able to present it in a very easy way to get just that decision point instead of trying to come up with like, how do I get humans totally out of the loop? Don't try to do that. Try to come up with just automating and making the things easy that can be made possible.
0: How does automation crossover with artificial intelligence?
2: Well, where I view AI, at least in the machine learning world these days, is more of like just a mass data. And to find patterns in that as a human being and looking at all that data, there's almost no possible ways. So I first look at it from that standpoint for how does it help train models and how does it help like give us more efficacy towards alert structures and to pattern matching. And then still having humans make decisions. You know, when you go to AI, I kind of tend to see it as, well, then the machines take over and they start making the response decisions based on what they see in those patterns. I don't think we're there yet, to be honest.
0: Do do you think that we're going to see AI or machine learning as they build models and get smarter about the kinds of threats or the kinds of vulnerabilities, will they be mapped within an organization and improving that individual organization's ability to do things? Or will we see models... Be built that can transfer across organizations and kind of be used more broadly? Is it going to be horizontal or is it going to be specific?
2: I think it's going to have to be horizontal. And the reason I say that is for ML and AI to work at a fundamental level of concept, it has to have a massive amount of data. For the most part, any one individual company is not going to have enough data for them to to pattern match and to actually train those AI models to anything that I would consider to be holistically accurate. We're going to need to train based on the entire, in the community not level of knowledge, not on the individual level of knowledge. And that's where you've seen many of the technologies, they're cloud-driven. There was many reasons to do that, kind of making it a little bit more version ag- agnostic by being able to control versions at a cloud level, so in somewhat uh, cases negating the need for constant patch management structures as our security technologies are cloud-delivered and you know, as when you update in the cloud version, everybody's version is updated. So that, that's one aspect, but two, you know, as it learns more and more, it will be able to holistically help the community, not just individuals. We're going to need to have more data than any individual company can actually provide.
1: So it occurs to me that based on your years of experience and your engagement across all these different customers, that you probably have a great perspective on that sort of journey that you described earlier on companies that have more of an immature view on security and maybe their journey eventually to a more mature stance?
2: Uh, I'll give you one of our um, large manufacturers that, uh, I'll be honest, was terrible uh, at the maturity scale. They were very immature. And what they did is they ended up buying a financial company. And that financial company was, of uh, you know, because financials, uh, you know, they, A, they have the most money, and B, they're the biggest targets because they keep money. <laughs> so people are usually going after money. So you know the fi- financials tend to be on the more mature side in that vertical side. So them buying that, um, that company kind of forced them along the maturity scale. But where it really fundamentally started is the, just what we said is first of all, I really have to know what all my assets are. You know, the, the basic stuff, what assets do I have? What is my attack surface? And then you know formation behind that, okay, now that I know what all of my assets are, now move to the next thing. How do I control these assets? How do I do patch management? How do I know what they do? How do I get them into a CMDB? None of this is rocket science stuff, but it is fundamentally, you can't do the the really heuristic level type stuff and the interesting stuff until you have this foundational components built. And that's how they were forced to do that because now they were under regulatory things that they were never under before. And that moved them along where I see technology being stifled a little bit, the ones that are heavily regulated towards the other way. So you think of like embedded devices into hospitals, embedded devices in critical infrastructure who have to follow kind of the older models like Purdue models or the FDA validation components because they're so heavily regulated. You can't introduce new technology sets and you can't introduce even some of those fundamental aspects. I I remember you know, when I was working at a, at a hospital group and I was like, hey, that's pretty easy. Just go fix that, you know, and you can go patch that and then you'll be good. And they're like, oh, we're not allowed to touch that because only the people like who are, you know, certified by the manufacturer and whether or not that's like, you know, Medtronic or some of the hospital manufacturers, they're the only people who can touch that per FDA regulations. Well, and if you touch it, then you might have to go through recertification. Exactly. Whatever else. It, it is
1: interesting, though, that those those spaces that you describe which are probably some of the most sensitive areas, because they're so sensitive, they tend to be disconnected. So you can't even connect to them to update them. And then they're sort of designed by security because it's so hard to get to these devices that that's the sort of security fortress that's built around these devices. But it also makes them next to impossible to actually update in any way.
2: Well, and as we talk about that motivational aspect of things, your your power producers and uh, power generation type stuff, they're only measured on one thing. (laughs) Is the power on or is the power off? They're not measured on like how secure is the environment or anything else. To your point around what you were talking about earlier is why did we make it so difficult? Because of that motivational aspect. Us all as users here, I don't really care how the sausage is made. I just care that the power's on and that I can talk to you guys across the internet. That's what's made it difficult to keep those foundational level aspects and the basic things like patch management, because it does interrupt, or it has the potential to interrupt that flow of binary on or off. Yeah.
1: The one piece that really strikes me from hearing you speak here is around that motivation piece. Like you said before, you're using kinder language now, but earlier you said, what is a person going to get yelled at for? And maybe there is a lesson there. Maybe there's some wisdom there for companies to start asking themselves, like, for my IT parts of the organization, what do I really care about? And is security part of that? And if it's not, then realize that you may be unintentionally driving people in an unsafe way because... They think that what's really important is, you know, uptime or keeping the power on. They're not spending time and effort trying to keep the infrastructure safe.
2: Well, and unfortunately, we're paying those bills right now. As you see, like you know, many people who put things off and particularly into critical parts of their business, whether or not it be email or the VPNs, and we've all seen many of the vulnerabilities these days. Where like the CISA is is like down on their knees begging us, please. I'm watching people like actually exploit these things <laughs> while we're talking, please uh, patch your stuff. We have to have that motivational change to understand that we may have to take some downtime to upgrade things uh, or to patch things across these security vulnerabilities. Cause one way or another, we're going to have to pay for that.
1: Yeah. It's either you pay for it like a dollar a day, <laughs> or you pay for it in millions of dollars when you get exploited or something right. like that. And it, and, and it's a sort of, a little bit each day versus a big, massive, painful build that comes due.
2: And eventually where I think we'll get is you know, many of the newer application sets as we go to cloud and as we go to things like Kubernetes and microservices, we're going to build resiliency into where we can do patch management on the fly and security upgrades on the fly to where we're not near as affecting towards the business that we were when we had just Patch Tuesday, and whenever it was Linux Wednesday, and we ever had to go do those things in a fundamental, more manual way, and that's where I think digital transformation will be helpful, and it'll take people down maturity curves faster just by the the technologies that they're adopting. Yeah, well, and
1: as an industry too, you know, the updating mechanism was first of all it was painful, hmm. uh, and sometimes it failed, yeah. and so that led people to say, well, maybe I don't want to be on the forefront of updating machines because maybe that's going to make the machine unavailable or, or, you know, it's going to cause other problems. So as an industry now, we're better at these updates. It's not perfect yet, but it's still much better. And maybe that's part of the, that journey that we all have to, to travel is, is your confidence that if I update it, not
2: only am I fixing the problem, but I'm not going to create another problem somewhere else. Uh, you bring up an incredibly interesting thing there, uh, as you know, and Camille, you brought this up a little bit as far as like, you know, embedded devices and IoT functions. This is where we're going to be challenged as IT professionals and security professionals to go work with our procurement teams. How much do you think our procurement teams put value on those kinds of things when they go by elevators or air conditioners or thermostats? Not only, you know, are there security embedded features into these things, Are there logging features built into these things? Or is that upgradeability? how easy is that to do patch management? How long are updates available? These aren't traditional things that purchasing people have looked at as they're buying those kinds of uh, function sets. And we're going to have to assign value to that. We're going to have to say, I would rather spend an extra $0.02 per unit. And you think of the most attacked uh, asset is going to be a camera right now. I'm willing to spend two cents more on that camera if it has security features built in, or it has automatic update functions, or updates that I can easily manage towards and and can manage in my security operations. We're going to be challenged to do that and work with our procurement teams uh, around those kinds of things.
0: I think that's true. I think people are starting to look at the entire lifecycle of a device or system that they're implementing as opposed to just what is the cost of this device initially they're starting to factor in how long am I going to use this device and how safe is the, are the different areas of it? Like how safe is the provisioning of the device? And then can I update? And then what happens at the end of life of the device? Do I have some way of taking care of it? Because it seems like a lot of different elements are coming together. People are looking at corporate responsibility and sustainable compute you know, kind of on the far side, as well as design in um and secure sourcing on the far left, it seems to me people have much more of a holistic view now than they used to
2: I think they are, but I think as as we do that we're also uncovering the, these entire portions that we didn't actually know before you know i mean if you if you think of uh the solar winds and and I know Sadacker personally, you know he's the CEO of solar winds actually. He hasn't necessarily said where it is, but he says, you know, it's it's only from a few places. And one of the possibilities is, is looking at, you know, not just how the development was done, it's also where it was done, you know, and what the development tools that were used. And then you have to go backtrace on that supply chain. You look at like, you know, GitOps functions and where it was GitHub, and you're looking at the factory it was built in. It, it keeps making it more complicated. And that, along with the consumerization, of uh, IT these days, if you look at like your Office 365 and you go, huh, I can add one of these 400 little things in here. That's very different than, you know, when I grew up in the IT world, it was like the clients had to come to you and say, hey, I want to add this piece of software into the environment. They don't have to do that anymore. And you know, how are you supposed to do security posture checks on each of those applications that get introduced in? And it's very difficult and it's challenging.
1: We do have a segment on our podcast. Uh, Maybe we should title this the I didn't know that segment. (laughs) I wonder if you have something that you would like to share with our listeners
2: um, that you think they might find interesting. My daughter, I think I told a joke about a bear hibernating and she goes, dad, bears don't actually hibernate. And I was like, you know, I tried to be the understanding father and tell her like, I'm sorry, sweetie, of course, bears hibernate. And then she was very insistent and told me, no, they don't. And then I kind of had to, you know, do the, okay, now we have Google, so we can go look these things up. And it turns out she is totally correct. And I'm totally wrong that bears do not hibernate. They go into a state of torpor. So uh, my daughter taught me uh, something the other day, and I'll probably remember that (laughs) every day for the rest of my life.
0: I find this to be a big problem now. The, the kids, it turns out they're usually right whenever I go to Google.
1: <laughs> and, and so, what's the difference between this state of, would you call it torpor? Tor,
2: torpor. Uh, apparently, the difference is, is like the level of activity. In true hibernation, they are totally out and like their heartbeats go. And I mean, and blood flow changes. Torpor is just a deep sleep. So, bears actually do wake up. Uh, periods during the winter and again i'm going totally on google results and wikipedia here so you know well, i'm sure I'm,
1: if it's online it's got to be true got
2: to be <laughs> has to be
0: well we're talking yes. about conservation of energy in the animal kingdom so uh my fun fact of the day is that firefly lights are the most efficient lights in the world 100 of the energy from the firefly is emitted as light Whereas there's like this 90-10 rule with what we can do. Fluorescent bulbs are 90% efficient. 90% of the energy comes out as light. 10% is heat. But fireflies are 100% of that energy is emitted as light. I think that's cool.
2: That's very cool. It is cool. You just took me back to high school physics about uh, heat is the grim reaper. (laughs)
0: There you
1: go. So I'm going to stick with a myth theme that Todd brought up before. And my myth that I'm going to bust right now is that it is a myth that we only use 10% of our brains. So there's a caveat, unless you have like a traumatic brain injury or some other sort of neurological disorder, you have access to 100% of your brain, even when you're sleeping. Even the most basic functions of your brain use more than 10%. So for all of us that have heard that you only use 10% of your brain, that is completely false. So that's my little fun, fun fact of the day there for that one. So Todd, I'd like to thank you again for joining us and sharing your, uh, the stories from your background. I thought it was fascinating and a couple of really good lessons for our listeners.
2: Well, appreciate you having me on. It was a lot of fun and uh, uh, lo- love to do it again sometime.
0: Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening.
2: The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.